The following audio is from Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Luke chapter 4, 16 to 30. If you're not familiar, um, and the title of the message tonight is Jesus Rejected at Nazareth. The text to me, has always been a curious one. Every time I read through the Gospels and come across this event, it's mentioned at least, at a minimum, briefly in all four Gospels. It's always grabbed my attention. It's fascinating to see um, his, his people just completely turn on him. Um, and I never really understood why. So since having this opportunity, I was able to look into it a little deeper and see that the whole story is just rich with gospel, and also truthfully contains uh, and exposes real struggles that people have with doubt. Uh, so again, studying this has been challenging yet rewarding. Um, so I hope that tonight we see and leave blessed by our study of it together. This event of Jesus being rejected, recounted to us by our favorite doctor, Luke, took place sometime in the first year of Jesus' ministry. So it was fairly early on. Even though several memorable moments of Jesus' ministry had already taken place, by this time Jesus had performed many supernatural acts over Galilee, all over Galilee, and so his fame began to spread. Because a man's reputation travels faster than he does, without a doubt, news of these works had made its way back to Nazareth. With all the reports in the air of Jesus, the miracle worker, we read in chapter 4 an account of Christ returning to the town of his youth. Not just the town where he was born, Bethlehem. Not just a town where he may be visited on holidays. This is a town where he was raised, where he was connected, familiar, he was known. Likely his family still live there. This is a town for Jesus where he does not experience anonymity. There's no secret pass. With such an intimate connection to the townspeople, town people of Nazareth, and all the wonderful stories of heavenly power circulating at the time, I can imagine that as he showed up at the synagogue that Sabbath morning, it may have been a little packed. As far as what kind of energy or expectation was in the room, well, the scripture tells us that as he preached in other towns, it was uh, they always marveled and glorified. So it would have just been bumping. It would have been something in the air. For months, the Jesus movement, if we can call it that, had been building momentum. It would be hard to believe that it would be any different at home. It would be like if, not mentioning any names, a local team a local sports team won a championship after years and years of dismal results. You would expect a certain level of hype and excitement. We all know that won't ever happen. And so with the details, these details in mind, his hometown people already very familiar with him, yet excited with what they've been hearing. Let's begin reading in verse 16. He came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet 
Isaiah, which is Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. He closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And all bear him witness and wondered at the gracious words which proceeded out of his mouth. And they said, Is not this Joseph's son? He said unto them, You will surely say unto me this proverb, Physicians, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also hear in this country. And he said, Verily I say unto you, No prophet is accepted in his own country. But I tell you of a truth, many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. But none of them was Elias sent, save unto Sarepta, the city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. And many lepers were in Israel in the time of Eliseus or Elisha, the prophet. And none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman, the Syrian. And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city, and led him unto the brow of the hill whereon their city was built, and they might, that they might cast them down headlong. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. God bless the reading of his word. Wow, imagine the Christ, Jesus' very self, preaches in your town, in your synagogue, is the one that tries to throw him off a cliff, and is written down and recorded in Holy Scripture. What happened? What brought it to that point? How did it escalate so drastically? What made them so angry that they would turn on him? Pastor Rick is always talking about how he's often offensive to people, but he's never had anyone even rush the stage. Um, and neither has Pastor Dan, for that matter. Oh, wait, there was that one time. Yeah. Um, good job. So, <laughs> remember their history, Jesus and the Nazareth people. His reputation, the excitement, the news, the hype. Where does this hype come from? It comes from their expectations. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. First, we have to look at the reading that Jesus delivers. He reads from the book of Isaiah. He chooses to read from chapter 61, verses 1 and a portion of 2. Although they would have been very familiar with these texts and the idea of the year of the Lord's favor and the coming of the servant of God, of which that text speaks, they do not yet know of Jesus' intention to appropriate them to himself. To, under, to understand what Jesus is saying about himself, that they learned, we need to know first what they mean. So starting in verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me. Anointed by the Spirit, set apart 
marked, chosen, sent. Isaiah chapter 42, 1 says, Behold my servant whom I uphold, mine elect, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. And 48, Isaiah 48, 16, says a servant, this is the servant speaking, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, there am I. And now the Lord God in his spirit hath sent me. So along with a beautiful nod to the Trinity in that last verse, we see that scripture has prophesied that a servant would be sent to redeem the people of God. And Jesus is that servant sent by the Father with the Spirit. And Jesus opens with this word so that he can soon claim it to be about himself. We are familiar with that claim. We are. Most of us here would believe that is true. We have 2,000 years of church history confessing that to be true. But for these Jews, the people in that synagogue, they were not hearing this as history, chronicle, or creed. No, they were experiencing it firsthand. To them, at this point, the miracle worker is just reading the prophets. It happens every Sabbath, minus the miracle worker. The next few lines informs us as to the nature of the ministry of this servant to help us identify his arrival and the purpose of his coming and what will be the focus of his work, particularly his redemption. The servant comes to redeem God's people from the power of sin and death. Romans 8, 2. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and of death. Understanding sin to be the root source of our trouble we see that what the servant plans to do about it. We need to understand sin as our trouble when we see how the servant or what the servant is going to do. Preach the gospel to the poor is the next verse, next few words. Another translation puts it: preach the good news to the afflicted. When he comes, he's going to have a message. This message will be addressed to the poor and the afflicted. So you must be poor to receive the message. Poor how? Well, if sin is our trouble, then the sin is what makes us poor. Poor in righteousness. The next line. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to bind up, to make whole all the damages and costs that they have suffered due to sin. Recovery is in this promise. Justice is in this promise. The servant will provide healing for the hurt that sin has caused. He doesn't just bring a Band-Aid solution. He promises here a complete and whole restoration. To preach deliverance to the captives, or to proclaim liberty to the captives. Paul talks often about formerly being a slave to sin, and then contrasts that now to being in Christ, as he is a slave to God only. Only someone with the authority and the power can meaningfully preach this deliverance. And recovering of sight to the blind. Sin is blinding. It prevents us from seeing God, seeing God as he is, like these Nazarites maybe suffered from. The servant will remove the veil between us and God to set at liberty them that are bruised to have their sure freedom established, freedom 
from the curse of the law. Finally, verse 19, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. This phrase is directly linked the idea, to the idea of jubilee, which, for the purpose of time, we'll just imagine it as an ultimate Sabbath, where the Sabbath is the rest on the seventh day of each week, and the seventh year you would let the in the seventh year you would let the land rest from being worked. In the seventh group of seven years, 49 years, the next year would be the 50th year, and that's the year of Jubilee. Simple, I know. It was like a reset button built into the civil law of God. Lands and fortunes, if lost, or deals gone bad, loss of freedom to slavery and captivity, all these categories had a sort of reset. So every tribe and family, etc., get back to how God had originally set things. Continuing with the concept of sin being our trouble, then this, the year of the Lord's favor, proclaimed by Jesus, would be God's people getting to commune with God again. And that's the text that Jesus read. Just a brief summary of what Christ was meaning and what he would further explain to them when he read to them. And it says in the next verse, verse 20, And he closed the book and gave it again to the minister and sat down. And the eyes of all them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. Suffice it to say, so far so good. After only the reading, everyone is still seated, apparently still waiting with bated breath. I imagine you could have heard a pin drop. No one wanted to miss what would come next. Something miraculous, maybe? As it would be expected, Jesus would explain what he had just read. So how does he explain the verses? Verse 21, And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. He began to say unto them, This is just the tip of the iceberg. Jesus began expositing the text further, showing them with reason and with more scripture how he was a sinner of all of God's revealed word, with authority and beauty, he explained to them how he was the fulfillment of so many prophecies. And Luke recounts in verse 22, and all bear him witness. They're agreeing with him and wondered at the gracious words words which proceeded out of his mouth. They followed his teaching. In the words of Matt Chandler, if you remember from the home study group a little years ago, they were tracking with him. They who knew the physical, historical person of Jesus most, when they were confronted with Jesus' own clear and authoritative explanation of the scriptures, they agreed with him. This was all making sense. They were making public profession of their assent. You could see their heads bobbing, even marveling at his delivery and the content of his message. Wow. It just seems like things are going so well. And then they said, Is not this Joseph's son? This statement communicated doubt, a pervasive doubt, a doubt that was still hanging on. Like, hold on, wait a minute. I know this man, and I see what he's saying, that he's no savior. 
He's just the carpenter's son. Even though they had heard him speak and explain the scriptures, even though they had heard of his power and miracles, even though in the first part of this very verse they were bearing witness and marveling at his words, how could they doubt? They know him as full and well as the devil knows him. Oh, but that isn't it, is it? They knew, oh, but that's it, isn't it? They knew about him. They knew all kinds of details and minutia about his life, his likes, his dislikes, his family tree, where he came from, his history. They could identify him in a field from a half mile away. They knew the sound of his voice. They felt the care of his embrace. They knew the man, Jesus. But sadly, that's all they knew of him. They couldn't see him. It's how he had shown himself to them. Those ideas didn't fit within their preconceptions of Jesus. It just couldn't be. He was just the son of Joseph to them. When the word of God is communicated to you, how does it affect you? Is it a healing balm for your broken heart? Not if your heart's not broken. When God promises you liberty, do you swell with joy? Not if you don't think your sin is bondage. Verse 23, and he said unto them, you will surely say unto me this proverb, physician, heal thyself. Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in this country. Physician, heal yourself, or take care of yourself, take care of your own. It implies a radical distrust. It's like seeing a doctor that is ill himself. It just makes you wonder, right? Whatsoever we have heard done in Capernaum, do also here in thy country. Why haven't you taken care of us? What we have going on here is a crowd of familiar faces that aren't willing to trust Jesus after all he's already done. They start to play a comparison game, sort of like resentful comparison. Well, isn't that nice, Jesus? You've been all over Capernaum just teaching and healing them. Why haven't you done anything here? You know, at home, I thought we were neighbors. This comparison game was even more insidious than what we see on the surface. Sure, the people are exposed by this attitude as resentful or bitter, which is really just anger. However, their attitude is also exposing unbelief. If they believed Jesus to be who he was claiming to be, the Messiah, I doubt they would have asked him to prove it, prove it with miracles. Some of their wicked hearts might have been asking questions like, well, if I saw a miracle, I believe, I believe, or telling themselves, if I saw a miracle, I believe, or sure, he's a great preacher, and those rumors sound good, but how can we really know, really know? These Nazarites were a truly enlightened crowd. They needed hard evidence, no time for myths fantasies. Show me, they exclaimed. So ultimately, they wanted Jesus to prove what he had already given them ample proof of, and thus he exposes their belief, unbelief, in what follows. Verse 24, and he says, Verily I say unto you, no prophet is accepted in his own country. This was a proverb of their day, basically 
as the testimony of Scripture bears, and as Jesus will go on to explain, the prophets have a history of not being well-received at home. The main factors that contribute to this being the case is probably familiarity. Familiarity breeds contempt. When things become common to us, sometimes we lose the reverence we should have for it. I remember starting in the woodworking industry, and the first thing they told me was always respect the saw. Over the years, I'd been pretty good at doing that. I still have all my fingers. But even recently, just a couple weeks ago, I was cutting something in a way I knew wasn't exactly appropriate. And the thought crossed my mind. I should be careful. Famous last words. While well, a piece of wood crossed the blade, and the teeth of the blade hooked into the wood, and with unbiased strength, slammed the wood back into my thumb. It hurt quite a bit. But now that was a way in which I disrespected a tool, and I suffered for it. How else do we do that? Sometimes with our families, right? Maybe a spouse or child. When we become, well, because we are familiar with them, we can lose some of the awe and care we should relate to with them. Or how about our material blessings? It doesn't matter if you're a millionaire. You ought to be thankful for every meal. The Lord doesn't owe you anything. It really is easy to make the sermon about the morals of the story, though. But God help us as we try and stay focused on Christ and his point, preserving this moment in history for the church. You will see in the next few verses how Christ engages with their familiarity of him and offends them and then passes them by. Verse 25. But I tell you of a truth. Many widows were in Israel in the days of Elias, when the heaven was shut up three years and six months, when great famine was throughout all the land. We remember the story. Drought came upon the land, and God sent Elijah to a brook for a time. And God used ravens to bring Elijah food. Verse 26, But unto none of them in Israel was Elias sent save unto Sarepta, a city of Sidon, unto a woman that was a widow. When the brook dried up, God sent him to a poor widow whom God had elected to care for Elijah. Jesus doesn't explicitly say why this particular widow is chosen to care for Elijah. All we know, the scripture says that God commanded her to do it. And When the prophet came and asked for aid, she re responds in faith, to Elijah's prophecy that the last morsel of flour and oil would not run out. She responded in faith. She believed him at his word. The word that he claimed was from God. She had not seen any proof. She just saw, she had just met him. All she knew was she could tell that Elijah was from God. Her story ends with her affirming the prophet for who he claimed to be. Then, Jesus moves the story to Naaman. Verse 27, And many lepers were in, the, in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, saving Naaman the Syrian. So in this story, the man in need, this time, is not the prophet, but was the commander of the Syrian army. And this man had all earthly luxuries available to him, but was suffering 
from leprosy and could find no cure or relief. And one of his wife's servant girls, a slave stolen after a victorious battle against Israel, a nobody in this story, tells Naaman about the prophet Elijah and suggests that he might find help with him. Upon only the testimony of a little girl, Naaman grabbed a decent amount worth of goods and set out to meet the man of God from Israel. Although Naaman's pride almost got in the way of believing Elisha's words, his faith prevailed. He believed, obeyed, and was healed. However, he was the only one healed of leprosy at the time. Not exactly who you would think would be the one to receive blessings from God. Verse 28, And all they in the synagogue, when they heard these things, were filled with wrath, and rose up and thrust him out of the city. And they led him unto the brow of the hill, whereon the city was built, that they might cast him down headlong. After all the hype, and Jesus himself exposing the true meaning of the scriptures, as he recounted these two Old Testament examples of faith, of God's unrestricted grace, the crowd's opinion of Jesus turned to skepticism, doubt, and anger. They couldn't come to grips with the idea that the man they had always known was the Messiah. Or more aptly, they would not. Their wicked hearts boiled over with entitlement, pride, jealousy, and hatred. Entitlement because they thought that the power of God should be for them more than for others. Pride because they thought that God would favor them before others. Jealousy because they were jealous of the works, Christ, the works Christ had done for others. Hatred. Jesus' rebuke hit them square in their unrepentant faces, and they, in their shame, sought to remove this rock of offense. Verse 30. But he, passing through the midst of them, went his way. We are not told how this occurred, the exact details of how Jesus evaded an angry mob, unknown to us. Some evangelical scholars think it may be due to a condition of ASB, acute spiritual blindness, known to have occurred frequently in religious Jews at the time. It's a real condition, documented right here in scripture. I joke about this because honestly it's, it's a very uncomforting truth. This has to be one of the saddest lines in the New Testament. This, this could have been a story like if a prospective candidate for president came to his hometown to announce that he was running, it could have been cake and whistles and parades and feasting. It could have been wonderful, but it turned out so very tragic. In closing, let me just reiterate some of the main ideas from this text. So if I didn't do it well earlier, at least I now have some practice. I guess I need the practice. first idea, the prophet has no honor in his own country. This sets the tone for kind of the whole story. Familiarity breeds contempt. We ought never be presumptuous with God, especially of his grace. Do not be so comfortable with what you know about God that he ceases to be holy in your sight. Do not let his grace cease to be amazing. 
It is not a reasonable grace that we have from God. It's amazing grace. It's truly inconceivable grace. We can't fully comprehend it. It's not that we can't recognize the things of God at all. It's that we will never wrap our mind around his ways. His ways are above ours. The God of Scripture is not described as love, 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 or justice, justice, justice. No. In Scripture, he is only thrice referred to as holy, holy, holy. Primary emphasis with God is his otherliness. We must never forget that. And I think this story clearly illustrates that we are mistaken when we set up expectations of God that he is not himself established. Point number two. Physician, heal yourself. Really an expression of radical distrust. We've heard it before. It's echoed back to Jesus while he hung on the cross as the crowd mocks and jeers him. It says to him one more time, how can you save others if you can't save yourself? What they did not understand and what we must understand is that if he had saved himself, No one else would be saved. If Jesus had saved himself, we would all be perishing today. This persistent, self-giving, self-sacrificing of Christ, emptying himself, suffering, shame, our shame, the shame of a cross, shame that accompanies sin, not his own sin, of course, but ours, shame of a king being led to his slaughter. That's not the way it's supposed to be. Think of Saul falling on his own sword just to avoid humiliation. Yet Christ obediently lays down his life under no obligation but to please his Father. Finally, the main idea I want us most to consider is what Jesus actually read from Isaiah. Jesus as the servant come. Jesus claims to be the Messiah the chosen one. It's the main thrust of scripture. His ministry is to save, serve those who are poor, broken, captive, blind, and oppressed, and to proclaim the year of God's favor. It can only be Jesus. No one else in history has laid down his life and picked it back up again. For those looking for a sign, looking to find a a cause for their doubt, the resurrection leaves them, leaves us, without excuse. And so, I will close with this. If you are poor, broken, captive, blind, or oppressed, if your answer is no, then you need to continue reading in the Psalms. You should find that you are. But if you answered yes, if that's how you identify yourself, find yourself to be identified, then that's good news. Christ came to be Messiah for you. Go this week into the world as people that have been changed, changed by the truth of this gospel, no longer of this world, but in it as pilgrims, citizens of Christ's kingdom, hopefully awaiting the glorious appearing again of our Lord.